Hello, friends and enemies. Welcome to the Old Movie Lady podcast. I am your host, the titular Old Movie Lady, but you can also call me Marg. This is the 20th episode of my series, The Wampus Frolic. Join me as I explore the lives, careers, and public personas of a group of dreamers, of stars to be and stars that weren't, the Wampus Baby Stars. We are knee-deep in 1928, and I have so much to tell you. Last week, I covered six of the 13 Wampus Baby stars of that year. Alice Day, Ruth Taylor, Flora Bramley, Audrey Ferris, Gwen Lee, and Anne Christie. But there are more Wampus Babies, and we have no time to waste. Snuggle up and enjoy the rest of the stories. Lena Basquette. Lena Basquette, born Lena with an E, Basket. Her stage name was sort of a hyacinth bouquet bucket situation. She was born on April 17, 1907, and was just nine years old when she had her first brush with moviedom. With the contract at Universal, she appeared in several films between 1916 and 1919, including some special Lena Basket featurettes. Considered one of the best dancers her age, Lena even got the attention of famed prima ballerina Anna Pavlova. But her mother Gladys discouraged Lena from pursuing ballet professionally, as she reportedly felt there was more money in other forms of performance. Thus, at 16, still a child, Lena was signed by Flo Ziegfeld to be a Follies girl. He did promote her as America's prima ballerina, but the Follies weren't about classical ballet, they were about showgirls. This suited her mother just fine, even if Lena dreamed of joining a proper ballet company. Something that also suited her mother just fine was one fateful evening in 1925, when an orchid corsage arrived backstage for Lena after she appeared as a featured dancer in a show called Louis XIV. It came from none other than Sam Warner of the Warner Brothers. Lena wasn't interested in the invitation to dinner that came with the corsage. Why would she be? Sam was 20 years older than her, for one thing. But Gladys, to put it bluntly, saw dollar signs and encouraged her daughter to entertain this man's advances. For Sam's part, he was infatuated with the teenager the moment he saw her on stage. Presumably not wanting to scare her off completely or come off like a total creep, for the first couple of months of their acquaintance, he always took Lena out with her mom, too. Lena later wrote that she wasn't convinced Sam and her mother didn't have something going on between the two of them, but his goal was always Lena. He wanted to marry her, and one day, Gladys informed her plainly that it was all decided. Lena was going to marry Sam. So on July 4th, 1925, Lena became Mrs. Warner. It was a shock to the rest of the Warners, and a mild shock to Hollywood, though since no one really knew who she was, there was more bemusement than anything else. Sam Warner, longtime bachelor, marries a Follies girl. Though reports rarely mention her age, 
she was only 18, they always mention her chorus girl resume. As for the Warner family, though they too were probably side-eyeing her profession, their main concern about Lena was that she was Catholic and not Jewish. No one seemed too bothered about the fact that Lena hadn't been in love with Sam when they got married. She did come to love him. He was kind to her, gave her freedom from her controlling mother, and he was really supportive of her dreams. They had a daughter together, named Lita, in October 1926. The announcement in Moving Picture World is just about the cutest thing. Lita Twinkles! Lita Basquette-Warner, weighing exactly seven pounds, is the newest star signed by Warner Brothers. But Lita is a star of special significance who has come to bless the marriage of Sam L. Warner and Lena Basquette, former Follies Danseuse. Lita made her arrival at the Nassau Hospital, Mineola, Long Island, last Sunday. The reception she received from her proud father promises a close understanding between the new star and her daddy. A few months postpartum, Lena told Sam that she was ready to go back to performing, specifically wanting to give film acting another try. The rest of the Warners weren't pleased, not wanting an actress in the family, but Sam gave his wife encouragement. Her first film, as an adult, was 1927's Ranger of the North with Ranger the Dog. Distributed by FBO, this was essentially a Rin Tin Tin knockoff, Rin Tin Tin being a Warner Brothers property. Her next was with Paramount, a more prestigious operation, in a smaller role in Serenade, starring Adolf Manjou. You go over there and be a big success, Sam had told her when she started filming. Sadly, Sam never got to see either of Lena's 1927 films. If you've listened to my episode about the coming of sound, you'll know that while working on the first-ever feature-length film with talking, The Jazz Singer, Sam Warner's health was in a wretched state. He was working himself to the bone and ignoring some extremely serious symptoms that resulted in his death at age 40 on October 5th, 1927, the day before the opening of The Jazz Singer. Suddenly, at just 20 years old, with a one-year-old baby, Lena was a widow. She was, needless to say, although maybe it does need to be said, lest anyone misunderstand her feelings toward her husband, absolutely devastated and lost. According to Lena's autobiography, on his deathbed, Sam had made his brothers promise to give his share of the Warner stock to her and their daughter. They didn't do that. Instead, Lita was given a $100,000 trust fund, and Lena was given a dividend income from a $100,000 portion of his estate and his $40,000 life insurance payment. But his stock in the company, worth about a million dollars in 1927 money, just went back to his brothers. Working was all Lena could focus on to keep going. She was signed on to do The Noose, released in January 1928. In some ways, her inclusion on the Wampus list does feel unusual. Yes, she had gotten good reviews for her 1927 films and had a promising lineup slated for 1928, including 
the very high-profile Cecil B. DeMille production, The Godless Girl. But also, she was a known entity because her husband had just died. I'm not saying she wouldn't have been a wampus contender had he lived, but that he died certainly colored her publicity. And it made that publicity feel uneasy. In comparison to, say, Mary Astor, who was also widowed young, Lena's coverage doesn't necessarily focus on her husband. Mary's situation was turned into a tale of tragedy and triumph. Lena's refers to her as being Sam Warner's widow, and there's one profile in picture play that goes into more biographical detail, but you also will find her just showing up in glamorous fashion features, or in decidedly sexy photo shoots, like one in Motion Picture Classic, where she wore what they called formal harem attire, racist, and is pictured holding her breasts. It all hints of, well, a real-life vamp or gold digger, a black widow, even. One snippet from Picture Play supports this image of almost devious sexuality when describing how she met Sam, saying, Mr. Warner was helpless under her disturbing glances and gave in. And it didn't help matters when, during the filming of The Godless Girl, she met and began a relationship with cinematographer Peveril Pev Marley. He was a real piece of work, this guy. They married in January 1929. By that time, The Godless Girl's silent version had been released. It was a dud. A sound version released later didn't fare much better. So... Essentially, her film career hadn't resulted in anything that really grabbed fans by the shoulders, and remarrying so quickly wasn't a great look, when everyone kinda sorta thought you married the last one for his money. But things were about to get worse for Lena. Ever since Sam's death, the Warners, particularly eldest brother Harry, had been very concerned about his daughter Lita. They didn't trust the little girl's mother. They did think that Lena was a gold digger and knew that she was terrible with money, having blown through her insurance payout on bad investments and partying. Also, Harry was very traditional and very religious, and he wanted his niece to grow up with the same values of the other Warner children. This meant within the Jewish faith. Meanwhile, Lena's new husband, Pev, was not interested in being a stepfather at all, and he had pressured Lena into sending the little girl to live with relatives on Lena's side of the family. This was a step too far for Harry Warner, and he presented Pev, not Lena, with a proposition. If she gave up custody of Lita to him and his wife, she could have 100 k as a lump sum, instead of as a dividend income as before. As far as Pev was concerned, he'd just hit the jackpot. Pev pressured Lena to take the deal, but she resisted until Harry agreed to increase Lena's trust fund to $300,000, thus securing the little one's future. Harry Warner and his wife Rhea became Lena's legal guardians in March 1930. Lena deeply regretted her decision. She feared that she would never see her baby again. 
and those fears were justified. Lita later recounted that she only saw her mother a handful of times during her childhood. Harry clearly believed that what he was doing was right for his niece, and Lita also said that she benefited from the stability and care in the Warner home. But also, they stole this woman's baby! Lena was so very young, and it's hard not to see what happened as a total manipulation. It certainly couldn't have been what Sam wanted to happen to his wife and daughter. Lena declared that she would fight to get her daughter back, but she was up against a very wealthy, very influential, and very powerful family. Fan magazines were largely unsympathetic, even when she attempted suicide a few months later. Take this rather crass bit from Silver Screen's November 1930 issue. From present indications, Lena Basquette is going to keep on living without either her baby or Peveril Marley. She failed in her recent attempt to end her life with poison, and has also failed in her efforts to win the custody of her child from Harry Warner, brother of her first husband. And now Peveril Marley, the young husband for whom she gave up her baby, has just divorced her. It has a very jokes-on-you mood about it, as if to say, Ha! Huh, you couldn't even keep the husband you gave up your own child for. Whether intentional or not, the publicity that came with being at odds with the Warners meant that Lena was essentially blacklisted in Hollywood, too. Though she did continue working for the next decade, it was never for important studios. We'd be here all day if I tried to recount all of Lena's ups and downs, including several other marriages, decades of legal battles with the Warners, considerable heartbreak and trauma, and passionate affairs. But I do quickly have to include this story. DeMille's The Godless Girl had done poorly in America, as I mentioned, but it was a huge hit in Germany. Lena received a fan letter shortly after the film's release from none other than Adolf Hitler, but at the time she didn't know who that was. Flash forward to the late 1930s, and Lena was invited to visit Germany, where she claims that she had a meeting with Hitler. She said that he smelled like farts, and when he tried to put a move on her, she kicked him in the groin and lived to tell the tale. Of course that tale could be complete bullshit, but how could I ignore a wampus baby kicking Hitler in the nuts? Whatever else you call her, Lena Besquet was a survivor. She spent the last several decades of her life becoming an expert breeder of champion Great Danes, but never a movie star. Lena passed away at 87 years old in 1994. Molly O'Day. Molly O'Day arrived in Hollywood starting with shorts for Hal Roach in 1926, the same year her older sister, Sally O'Neill, was named a Wampus Baby star. Molly was born as Suzanne Noonan in October 1909 
And yes, I do think it's very amusing that both sisters took Irishy stage names, as if Noonan isn't Irish enough, and it's doubly amusing that they chose different O apostrophe names. Molly had just turned 17 when she signed a contract with First National and had her debut feature announced, The Patent Leather Kid, opposite Richard Barthelmas. Richard, one of the top leading men of his era, also produced the 1927 film and is credited with Molly's discovery. Her reviews were excellent, especially given her lack of experience. Motion Picture News mentioned her gifted acting and told exhibitors to exploit Molly O'Day. Hollywood Vagabond teased Hal Roach for never seeing her true potential, saying that he lost a great bet when he let her go, and praised her as one of the sensations of the day. Pitcher Play wrote, Miss O'Day's performance in The Patent Leather Kid was conspicuously successful. She clicked. Two more pictures followed before the end of the year, including The Lovelorn, which co-starred her sister Sally. According to a snippet of gossip in Pitcher Play, Molly had let all of her good reviews go to her head a bit and kept upstaging Sally during the filming. Finally, Sally had had enough and told Molly off in front of everybody. As a younger sister myself, yeah, that sounds about right. Sibling spats or not, Molly's inclusion on the Wampus Baby Star list of 1928 made perfect sense. She had two more films released in 1928 with bizarrely similar titles, The Shepherd of the Hills and The Little Shepherd of Kingdom Come, which paired her again with Richard Barthelmas. Her future looked brighter than bright. But never forget that Hollywood is, after all, a shallow town. A distressing circumstance began to assert itself, wrote Pitcher Play in their February 1928 issue. Miss O'Day, already comfortably plump, started to become uncomfortably plumper. The studio officials dispatched Molly to Arrowhead Lake, a resort some miles from the movie colony, that has a competent and strong-minded woman in command. Horseback riding, dieting, mud baths, exercise, and all the other methods by which the slender figure is ordinarily attained were ordered. The studio bosses at this writing are anxiously awaiting results. Get ready for some body-shaming bullshit, everybody! Starving back to stardom, read a headline in Photoplay's August 1928 issue, promising to tell readers the sad story of Molly O'Day, whose career was blighted by ice cream and candy. In the piece, they say that First National instructed her to lose 20 pounds or lose her contract. Writer Lois Shirley takes time to call Molly pudgy, plump, and heavy, and the feature shows two supposedly contrasting pictures of her, one from the patent leather kid where her weight was deemed acceptable, and one from a few months later where, according to them, things were really out of control. My darlings, let me assure you, she looks exactly the same in each photo. It's just that in one she's angled to the side and the other is more front-on. Somehow the photoplay piece gets even worse, when they explain how Molly had several projects lined up, 
but in two of them Molly had to dress up like a real lady. Did you ever see a pumpkin dressed in the evening clothes of a lady? A fucking pumpkin. Rather than, you know, provide her with a wardrobe that fit, First National canned her from the lineup. Pound of flesh demanded, said Pitcher Play in their December 1928 issue, detailing an operation Molly underwent to remove six pounds of flesh from her hips and legs. Motion Picture Magazine reported on the operation, too, and included a picture of Molly and her plastic surgeon. A few months later, Photoplay was snidely reporting that Hollywood insiders, like Al Santel, her patent leather kid director, thought the operation had been a waste of time because it didn't do enough. The prick was also quoted as calling her pathetically fleshy. After the operation, for which Molly was characterized as being at times brave, at other times just desperate, coverage still hung on her weight. Would she regain what the surgeon took from her? The Citrus Growers Association is reported behind the 18-day diet, such a rage right now, wrote Photoplay. Note the grapefruit three times a day. However, Molly O'Day is said to have lost eight pounds in a little over a week on it, which is better than having the weight taken off with a hammer and cold chisel as she did before. In 1929, Molly appeared alongside her sister Sally in the Meet My Sister number in the show of shows, but that was it. Another film was Sally the next year, but again, that was all for 1930. By then, her weight had become such a common topic in the fan magazines that they started using her name as shorthand. In 1930, for example, Talking Screen wrote of Greta Garbo's body, she came near going the way of Molly O'Day. Molly actually worked more consistently in the 1930s, albeit in supporting roles and for lower-budget studios. She popped up pretty frequently in the gossip columns. Molly and Sally were both part of the Hollywood social scene. And sometimes about who she was dating, but more for jokes about her diet. Today she lingers on the fringe of the industry, said Pitcher Play in 1932 in a piece called One Day Stars. Doing bits, living luxuriously with Sister Sally O'Neill, in spite of their recent bankruptcy, and wearing evening gowns which reveal too, too much of Molly's buxom figure. They just couldn't resist the jibe, could they? Molly made her final film in 1935 and quietly retired from movies, marrying and having a family. Molly O'Day was body-shamed out of being a star. Not only was she pressured by her studio to lose weight, when she complied with their demands by doing extreme dieting and surgery, she was shamed for taking these measures. It was as if, because she couldn't snap her fingers and magically have the body they wanted her to have, Molly was just doomed to failure and ridicule. And yes, I am thinking of today's world, where we also constantly shame those in the public eye if they don't have perfect bodies, and then snidely judge them for getting plastic surgery or being on Ozempic. And I don't have to imagine 
what it must have felt like for a young lady to look at that first article I mentioned comparing the two photos of Molly O'Day, because I'm a millennial, and we were practically raised on images that picked apart perfectly normal bodies. Dorothy Gulliver When Dorothy Gulliver was about 16, she entered and won the Miss Salt Lake City Beauty Contest, grabbing the attention of a Paramount scout who wanted her to come to Hollywood. Her mother, who raised Dorothy in the LDS faith, naturally balked at the idea of her teenager heading off to California. So thanks but no thanks, guy. Dorothy really, really wanted to be a star, however, and had no intentions of giving up on her dreams. The next year, in the summer of 1925, she entered and won another beauty contest, this time one sponsored by Universal. The prize included a six-month, $50-a-week contract. How could her mother say no to that? And thus, Dorothy found herself in Hollywood, where Universal quickly put her to work in shorts and serials, the classic Universal M.O., these were usually westerns, including shorts opposite Hoot Gibson and Jack Hoxie, but her most interesting, to me anyway, was a project as the main girl in a serial called The Collegians, which also starred George Lewis, Hayden Stevenson, and Eddie Phillips. Eventually running for four years and 46 two-reel installments, The Collegians followed the same group of characters through each year of college. Written by Carl Lemley Jr., it was labeled a Universal Junior Jewel and was basically an early youth-marketed sitcom. I've mentioned before how serials were spiritually similar to TV shows, and this is really one of the best examples of this. Since it ran so long, and Dorothy played June Maxwell, pretty daughter of the Dean, for the entire run of the serial, the Collegians really set her up to be a well-known personality to filmgoers. It didn't mean she was a star, but she had fans and recognition. Well, just like anybody in a popular sitcom. And just like anyone who plays the same character for a long time, Dorothy was forever linked, for audiences at the time, with her role as that sweet daughter of the college dean who the male leads fight over. But she wasn't only in the one show. Universal lent her out to Warner Brothers for a 1927 Rin Tin Tin movie, A Dog of the Regiment, and gave her an important role in their crime drama, The Shield of Honor, right at the end of the year. Dorothy Gulliver fits in very nicely in the love thread, said Moving Picture World. So okay. Thus, Dorothy's inclusion on the Wampus Baby Stars list made plenty of sense to me. In 1928, while the Collegians was ongoing, she appeared in Honeymoon Flats with her co-star George Lewis. It was a program feature clearly trying to capitalize on their existing popularity as an on-screen couple. And some feature-length westerns with Hoot Gibson. Nothing star-making, but Dorothy was definitely busy. This pattern continued the next year. Most of her time was taken up by the Collegians, then there was The Odd Western and College Love, a feature-length talkie featuring the same cast as the Collegians. Not just a talkie, though, a musical. Hot Jazz Baritis! What a pitcher! 
shouted the print ad for College Love. What box office whoopee! Speed, pep, jazz, action! What songs and moaning melodies like It's You and Oh, How We Love Our College! What snappy dialogue! Boy, it's great! The first all-talking college feature! It isn't a picture that will stand up in the deluxe houses, but in the neighborhoods it should get by in good shape. Read the review in Motion Picture News. There is enough pep and go to get it to the younger element, and after all, they are the ones to be pleased. The Collegians finally wrapped up later that year with an installment fittingly called Graduation Days. Dorothy was ready to graduate, too, and finding that Universal was quite content to keep her at the same level, she decided to freelance. Now, even if your series is popular, constantly playing the college girl isn't likely to give the biggest studios much faith in a person, so Dorothy found herself working for less-than-impressive studios like RKL, not the worst, and Tiffany Stahl. But at least her next few pictures were suitably grown up. There was Night Parade, a boxing drama, and Painted Faces, a uh, clown drama. She slid back into westerns and serials in the early 1930s. And you know the drill, smaller and smaller roles, often uncredited for the rest of the decade before finally taking her leave. Back in 1926, when she was only 18 or so, Dorothy married Charles Winchester DeVito, sometimes it is spelled DeVeet, an assistant at Universal to director William A. Cedar. They divorced sometime in the 1930s, and Dorothy remarried first a guy named Milton, and then Jack Proctor, who was, and I don't mean to sound so excited by this, but I am, who was a wampus. Obviously, I have no proof at all that this was the case, but let me indulge my true love fantasy here, that Jack saw Dorothy way back in 1927 and fell madly in love, but she was married, and the only small token of his affection that he could give her then was his vote in the Wampus Baby Star's election, and then life kept them apart, but maybe still in each other's orbits, passing like ships in the night, and Jack started his own publicity agency. That is true. His ad said, Intelligent Publicity for Intelligent People. And Dorothy got divorced, and then remarried, and then divorced again, and then somehow, like 15 years after he voted for her, they crossed paths again once more and fell in love. I, I don't know that that's actually how it went down. I don't know that he voted for her either but they do appear to have been together until his passing in 1976. By then, of course, Dorothy was long removed from her Hollywood career, having never reached stardom, but for a brief period being a familiar and welcome face to audiences. But the Wampus, save clearly for Jack Proctor, eventually, were wrong about Dorothy Gulliver. Sally Ehlers. Sally Ehlers broke into the movies at lunch, reported the Ames Tribune many years after the fact. Although born in New York, she had moved with her parents to Los Angeles when a little girl. She graduated from Fairfax High School in 1927. 
Like most youngsters living in proximity to Hollywood, she dreamed of someday appearing on the screen. After her graduation in the summer of 1927, she began visiting the casting offices of the various studios where her piquant beauty won attracted attention. Her chance, however, came in an unexpected fashion. Lunching one day at the Fox studio with Lloyd Pantages, she was introduced to director Howard Hawks, who asked her to make a screen test. Sally Bourne's circa 1908 showed up uncredited in a couple of Howard Hawks' 1927 films and some others before landing her first credited role in Slightly Used. It also features fellow Wampus baby star 1928 Audrey Ferris. As Motion Picture World put it, Sally Ehlers and Audrey Ferris add a pleasing, breezy touch as the younger sisters. Sally took her pleasing, breezy touch to the Senate lot next, and shortly before she was named a Wampus Baby Star, it was announced that Sally would star in a picture that, by name anyway, will be very familiar to listeners of this podcast. Max Senate has a grip on the megaphone once more after a separation of seven years reported the Moving Picture World in September 1927. When Al Golding, who was directing The Romance of a Bathing Girl, was suddenly taken ill and forced to relinquish his post as a director, Senate stepped into the breach with the announcement that he would direct the remaining sequences himself. Sally Ehlers, Johnny Burke, and Maddie Kemp have the leading roles in the picture, which will be released as a feature-length comedy. Wampus Baby Star of 1928, Sally O'Neill, was announced for the lead in that film, refusing to take it after being humiliated and objectified in front of a group of Senate producers. Then Wampus Baby Star of 1925, Madeline Herlock was announced for the role, and as far as I could tell, it was never made. I looked. I tried to find anything in Madeline's filmography that made sense, but I failed to realize that she had also been replaced and that the film had been renamed to The Goodbye Kiss. Now, actually, I could be totally wrong. Max Sennett easily might have just directed the same cast that was announced for an earlier unfinished project, and since no plot details were ever announced for The Romance of the Bathing Girl, it's impossible to compare. One check in the They Are Different Movies column is that from the stills that remain of The Goodbye Kiss... Sally's costume didn't look particularly skimpy, but I suspect it's as close to catching my white whale as I will ever get. After the goodbye kiss, Sally was romantically linked with her co-star, Maddie Kemp. Sally Ehlers and Maddie Kemp may get married, but they must sign an agreement to stay so for five years, reported Photoplay in their July 1928 issue. Such is the unique arrangement provided by Max Sennett for his protégés, whom he has boosted to film prominence through the goodbye kiss. There have been all kinds of we-promise-not-to-marry agreements signed by film players, but this is the first we-agree-to-stay-married arrangement. Mr. Sennett admits he would rather 18-year-old Sally and 20-year-old Maddie wait a while, but he refuses to compete with Cupid. All he asks is a legal arrangement that Cupid will keep up the work he has started. I guess they realized they weren't actually ready for that kind of commitment, and soon Sally was reported as being engaged to Howard Hawks's brother Bill. Sally's publicity was falling into that trap of being more about her social life than about her work, 
but aside from a supporting role in Dry Martini with Mary Astor, there really wasn't much else to write about. Max Sennett had no interest in doing any more feature-length films, and Sally was sick of doing two-reelers, so by mutual decision, he released her from her contract. I wish somebody would develop a proper enthusiasm for Sally Ehlers, wrote Pitcher Play in their Over the Teacups Gossip columns in March 1929. She is awfully ingratiating and clever. Columbia had some enthusiasm, awarding Sally with the starring role in Trial Marriage, a pre-code, a.k.a. at times risque, drama. And it wasn't long before someone else developed enthusiasm for her, too. Sally was cast in The Long, Long Trail, opposite Hoot Gibson. I've mentioned Hoot before in passing. He was 16 years older than Sally, fresh off a divorce from his second wife named Helen, yes, both wives were Helens, and a major cowboy star. He and Sally were married in 1930. The handful of westerns that she did with her new husband really did nothing for Sally's career. She was swinging between just, you know, the girl in a western, and then some rather fun and sexy pre-code dames in films like She Couldn't Say No, 1930, and A Holy Terror, 1931. Luckily for Sally, she had a lot more in common with the fun, sexy pre-code dames that she played rather than the demure western heroines, and that helped her land the biggest role of her career. Director Frank Borsage was looking for a leading lady with a certain je ne sais quoi, and Sally, it turns out, had a reputation for using the filthiest language in Hollywood. She was thus perfect for 1931's Bad Girl. The Fox production paired her with screen newcomer James Jimmy Dunn, with whom she had great chemistry. They would go on to do several more pictures together as a popular team. The film's success, her new contract with Fox, her majorly raised profile, her new blonde hairdo, it all coincided with cracks beginning to show in her marriage to old Hoot. Fate has twisted their positions topsy-turvy during the past two years. At the time of their marriage, Gibson was a popular Western star. She was practically unknown, wrote Screenland in their July 1932 issue. His salary was in excess of $6,000 a week. It is doubtful that she received $200 for the same period. Today, the name Gibson has become almost a stranger to the biggest motion picture theaters, but Sally Ehlers is regarded as one of the most promising young stars. They officially divorced in 1933. Sally's career continued on steadily, including several successful on-screen pairings with Robert Montgomery at MGM. Her partnership with James Dunn remained her most popular, though in the mid-30s they lost some of their previous magic when Fox merged with 20th Century and the duo were lost in the shuffle, though they did continue to work together. By the late 1930s, Sally was still starring in films but lower-budget affairs before essentially retiring appearing in some very sporadic parts all the way up to 1950. Sally married three more times, had one son, and lived out her days in a Hollywood mansion like the movie star she was. Her time in the limelight was relatively brief, and her stardom never took her to the very top. 
but I still call this a win for the Wampus. Sue Carroll The life of Sue Carroll reads like a storybook, or rather the professional life of Sue Carroll reads like a storybook, and the way she got into pictures is so easy that I don't suppose anyone will believe it, said Screenland in 1928. The piece was called Pretty Soft due to her breakout role in Soft Cushions in 1927, an almost certainly racist parody of the film Kismet. She played a harem flapper. Screenland explained to readers that Sue was born rich. She visited the Fox studio as a tourist, made a screen test on a whim, and accepted a role in the Douglas MacLean feature because she had some free time. The rest of the profile assures us that, of course, Sue is wonderfully nice and logical and talented. They also amusingly quote her as saying she won't get married for five years at least. Amusing because Sue, who was born in October 1906, had been married since 1924. The rest of the story is true, however. Sue basically did have a contract directly with Douglas MacLean handed to her. And as she had only appeared in soft cushions and one small role in 1927's Slaves of Beauty, she sort of had the Wampus Baby Star title handed to her, too. In 1928, Douglas made a pretty profit, loaning her out to the likes of MGM, Fox, and Pathé. She was being used as a sort of less expensive Clara Bow type. In fact, they looked similar enough and were cast in such samey roles madcap flappers, that fans were getting them confused. Or at least Sue's publicity team wanted everyone to think that they were alike enough to get them confused. How to Tell Clara from Sue was the name of a feature in Motion Picture Classics' August 1928 issue. In it, they insist that everyone mixes the pair up, but spell out the key differences being their extremely different upbringings, a street urchin versus a debutante, with the result that Clara is wilder than Sue. Clara is dynamic, mischievous, provocative. Sue is cute and coquettish. Sue flirts rather than tempts. In many ways, while they are admitting that Clara has the excitement advantage, Sue is a safer bet. And for the studios, a safe bet, that is, a performer who knew how to behave herself off-screen, was a mightily appealing scenario. About that contract that was handed to her. At first, it sounded great. Sue was getting $250 a week, and she didn't even have to try for the privilege. But she was quite in demand in 1928 on the heels of soft cushions. All might have been well from Miss Carroll's point of view had she not registered an instantaneous hit, reported Pitcher Play. To be sure, she receives her $250 a week, but the fact that she can earn 1500 proves to be a bitter pill for the young lady to swallow, especially because her employer takes advantage of her worth, rents her out at market value, and pockets the difference. Sue, being rich in her own right, offered to buy back her freedom for $25,000, but McLean wants a cool $150,000 for his foresight in making the discovery. Around this same time, Sue's husband, back in Chicago, filed for divorce on the grounds of desertion. And given that she left him in Chicago, barely ever mentioned him to anyone in Hollywood, and had begun very publicly seeing another man, 
Yeah, I suppose he had a point. That other man was the almost ridiculously cute Nick Stewart, her co-star in the upcoming film Girls Gone Wild. All through 1928, they had been linked, going to events together, vehemently denying engagements, and then coyly saying, one day, never officially admitting that Sue couldn't get married at that point. Miss Carol is married, wrote a scandalized fan to Picture Play. Even though she is separated from her husband, she is still legally married to him. Yet I read in the magazines, in newspapers, etc., that she is madly in love with Nick Stewart and he with her, that she went to Europe to make a picture with him, that they are continuously together, and so on. And all the magazines dote on printing the facts and praising these two youngsters. What is so wonderful about such actions under the circumstances? She had better get a divorce before much more is printed about her infatuation for another man. The fan later suggests, probably correctly, that everyone was giving Sue a pass because she was cute. But luckily for Sue, early 1929 meant that she was free from her first husband, and finally free from her contract with Douglas MacLean without having to pay him a cent. Douglas MacLean has let Sue Carroll slip through his fingers, explained Motion Picture, considering all the fuss Doug raised about Sue's services when another producer tried to get her away from him, this was a rather unexplainable piece of carelessness on his part. The story goes that McLean's attorney forgot to notify Sue that the option on her contract was being taken up, and so, thirty days later, she was automatically a freelance player. Ha! Sue quickly signed with Fox, who were excited to promote her and Nick as the cutest couple in Hollywood— and all the more excited when they eloped later that year. It looked as though Sue and Nick could be a more comedic version of Fox's extremely successful dramatic duo of Charles Farrell and Janet Gaynor, with the twist that they were an actual official couple. But their films weren't really anything to write home about, and Fox didn't take up Sue's contract the next year when they had the option to renew. A turn at RKO ended similarly. Sue Carroll reached the $1,750 a week class, reported Photoplay. Then she married Nick Stewart. Radio Pictures did not renew Sue's contract in May. I heard a well-known Hollywood actress tell Sue the other day, If you pardon me, dear, there has been too much of Sue and Nick. It has hurt your sex appeal on screen. Career-wise, things went south pretty fast for Sue. Three years ago, everyone was fighting over her, Screenland wrote a Sue in the January 1932 issue. Today, both Sue and her good-looking husband, Nick Stewart, once a Fox star, are finding the freelance game none too profitable. Sue took that year off as she and Nick had a daughter, and then, personal life-wise, things went south pretty fast, too. A few months later, they announced their separation— Sue and Nick officially divorced in 1934. By then, Sue was all but done with acting. But she wasn't all done with Hollywood. In the late 1930s, she opened up the Sue Carroll Agency, a talent agency, through which she discovered and managed Alan Ladd. A few years younger than her, Alan became a really important star in the 1940s, and in 1942, 
became Sue's fourth husband. There was a brief marriage after Nick. Alan and Sue were married until his overdose death in 1964. I'm going to save their story for another day, because it's as much Alan's story as it is Sue's. June Collier June Collier has been persuaded by Fox to give up society for the screen, wrote Picture Play in their October 1927 issue. By society, they meant high society, New York society, moneyed society. A debutante and graduate of Miss Knox's school, June had well-bred poise as well as beauty. Born in August 1906 or thereabouts, as Dorothea Hermans, she was the daughter of a well-regarded New York judge. All of this gave June a lot of la-di-da when, basically without trying, she landed an important featured role in 1927's East Side, West Side. One version of events said that she met the film's director, Alan Dwan, at a party, and he was so taken with her he offered her a role. Sounds like a gamble to me, but Alan's risk paid off, as June did well and got special notice in the reviews. Really alluring, too, she is. June Collier, new screen beauty, a glorious society girl. She's lovely enough to go far in pictures, said New York News. And from the Herald Tribune, a newcomer named June Collier is pretty and well-bred. With her shiny new contract at Fox and several projects in the work, June wasn't necessarily the most obvious choice for the Wampas, but she had such a great backstory as a sophisticated girl of refinement, and her discovery was like love at first sight but for casting, so everyone was eager to have her on the list. And Fox was eager to make her a star. June Collier was not accidentally given five leading roles in eight months said Pitcher Play in a piece they called Debunking the Cinderella Myth in their July 1928 issue. Trust the powers that be is the message from that. Those powers that be gave June a big role in Four Sons and then handed her the starring reins for films like Me Gangster, surprisingly not some gritty cookie monster reboot, and Hangman's House. Not the cream of the fox crop, it should be noted. The best roles at Fox were reserved for the likes of Janet Gaynor, after all. She rounded out the year with a well-publicized friendship with Prince George of England. He was Queen Elizabeth's uncle, quite a wild one, which played well both with her reputation for being very upper crust and befit a brand new second-tier movie star. The vast majority of June's publicity focused on her society roots, including a return of the she is rich and she doesn't even need to work, but here's why that's a good thing angle that the Wampas tried with Carmelita Garrity way back in 1924. It seems to have been a misfire. Publicity about June Collier has too many references to a society butterfly's life, put picture play in their March 1929 feature, How a Star is Made. True, she has talent, works hard, and deserves success, but the psychology is that the average fan may feel that June, with money and position, has too much, with fame added, and they may in time resent it. 
Perhaps it was a lack of fan engagement, but Fox opted to let June's contract go unrenewed later that year. She was quickly picked up by Paramount for a short contract, however they seemed in no hurry to use her in starring roles. Paramount put her in supporting parts, though frequently loaned her out so that she could pop up as the star of more risque vehicles, like in the Tiffany Stahl pre-code film Extravagance. The print ad for which said, It's the women who pay at the box office, and they will pay plenty to see the woman picture of the year. Women, backbone of the nation and the nation's theaters. What do they want? Beautiful clothes expensive furs, glittering jewels, handsome husbands, dangerous friends. They'll get them all in extravagance. Sign me up. Her biggest bit of publicity, though, came in 1931 when she eloped with character actor Stu Irwin. What everybody knew about June was that she was a pinkies-up, sophisticated society lady who often played rather sexy characters, but who was the height of refinement and taste in real life. What they knew about Stu was that he was a doofus, apparently. Wed Stu Irwin, June Collier elopes, said the headlines, and 50 million movie fans stood up as one and demanded to know how a dumb cluck like that ever won a gorgeous girl like June said Photoplay in a piece they called Not So Dumb, which simply proves this, that 50 million movie fans can be wrong. Stu Irwin is not dumb. On the screen he may be the stupidest oaf alive, but off screen he's just been smart enough to carry off one of the most beautiful girls in movies, June Collier, whose heart had withstood the blandishments of Hollywood's handsomest men, Hollywood's cleverest men, millionaires, merchants, society men, and even, they say, handsome Prince George of England. Stupid? Why, he isn't anything of the kind. He's the sweetest, smartest, nicest, dearest, cleverest, handsomest, finest man in the world, and I'm crazy about him, says June, and there you are. She meant it, too. June and Stu shared two children together and were married for over 35 years until his death. June followed him just three months later. After they started their family, June's output slowed down a bit, but she remained a fixture of the Hollywood social scene and a familiar face to audiences. She made her final film in 1936, later appearing in some Hollywood social scene-themed shorts, and then much later, co-starring with her husband on television in The Stu Irwin Show for five seasons between 1950 and 1955. Was June Collier the biggest movie star to ever come out of the Wampus Baby Stars list? No, but she was a star of some degree, and the Wampus definitely got this one right. This was a very husband-heavy episode of the Old Movie Lady podcast, but hey, that's just where the cookie crumbles sometimes. Speaking of cookies, I'd like to have time to make some this holiday season, so expect an altered posting schedule for new episodes until 2024. I haven't forgotten about Lupe Velez. She will be ready for her close-up on December 19th. Stay tuned. Thank you for listening to the second part of 1928. If you've been enjoying the show, don't forget to leave a review, 
rate and subscribe. It really helps, and it means the world to me. And don't forget to tell your friends and the public at large. The Old Movie Lady Podcast. It's a must-listen hot jazz whatever the fuck that means. I've been your host, Marg, the old movie lady, an unholy mess of a girl.